Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 132, and we're recording on June 23rd. I'm Sharifa Williams, here with Jen Northington, and today ended up being a bit of a mixed bag. (laughs) It was going to be our favorite new titles from the past few months, and we both had faced some challenges this time around. Uh, And for me, I'll talk about mine uh, a little bit later, but basically, I read a book for this episode that I ultimately did not feel good about boosting and uh, did not have time to read another one. So I'll be talking about something else for one of my titles, and one of them is going to actually be from this past quarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like we had so many for Q1 that we did two episodes, right? Like we were just like yeah. overflowing with Q1 reads. And so I got complacent and I was like, I've got this. Like I've got plenty to talk about. <laughs> and then I somehow I somehow hadn't read a sci-fi book and I didn't realize it until like Tuesday. So I was like, all right, I need to start reading some sci-fi. And so fortunately, <laughs> the one I picked up is so good so far that even though I'm not done with it, I feel totally fine talking about it. But it is, it has definitely been a journey. And if you listen, if you're a Book Ride Insider and you listen to our Read Harder, you'll know that I also didn't finish one of my books for that episode. So I blame the summer? Question mark. Like, yeah. Let's blame Why summer. Not? Right? That's fine. It was the fault of the strawberry supermoon. <laughs> Let's just blame it on that. It has absolutely no scientific validity or astrological validity, I'm... but I'm going with it. <laughs> I'm always ready to blame Mercury retrograde, so I can add strawberry supermoon to that. Like that's fine. <laughs> that's fine with me. I'm super here for that blaming. <laughs> All right. Well, now that that's settled, let's hear from our first sponsor and then we'll get into news. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. All right, we're back with some news. And I think that I want to start us off with some really good news because I yeah. live for good news. So I saw this story about Mallory Blackman who wrote the, I think, classic. I can say it's a classic yes. at this point. Yes. Classic YA dystopian novel, Knots and Crosses. So Blackman has won the Penn Pinter Prize, and it is because she has really changed the shape of YA writing. And in a time when we hear so much about, you know, people, uh, politicians mainly, railing against Critical race theory, which is a thing, like they're railing against a thing that doesn't actually exist in elementary schools. Mm. It's not taught in elementary schools. But at a time like that, to see Mallory Blackman receive this pride for a book that directly confronts injustice and real thinking about, you know, our society and our culture and how racism is systemic is an amazing thing and I'm really really happy for her um and she was of course said she was really honored to get to the to get the award and that she would not be the last children's and YA author to win the prize there are lots of fearless authors writing for young people and tackling complex issues in an entertaining, informative, and understandable way. I this makes me I did not I feel like this is a book I wish I had read when I was in high school. Um, because it sounds like a really great mind opening book. I don't think a lot of teenagers in their daily lives I mean, as far as my high school experience went <laughs> at least, got to have deep and involved conversations about what prejudice and discrimination and how race and classism are tied together. We didn't really have a lot of those discussions in classes even. And so to have this book out there in the world and to see that it's getting, you know, amplified for perhaps a new generation of young readers is really fantastic. And as a winner of this prize, um, I believe... Yeah. So Blackman also gets to decide on the international, um, what is it? The International Writer of Courage. So this is somebody who 
rights in defense of freedom of expression, often at great risk to their own safety and liberty. So all around, just an amazing thing, just a wonderful story and something that made me joyful this week. Yeah, I learned so much from this piece, too, in The Guardian. Um, it's by mm-hmm. Sarah Shafi. And oh, so yes. Blackman you. is the first children's and YA author ever to be awarded this particular prize, which is yes. super cool. And I thought this was just one book. It's six books. It's a six book series, Sharifa. I had no idea. I don't idea. think I realized that either. Right? <laughs> so, like, I have been hearing about it. Knots and Crosses has been on my TBR for, like, years at this point. Yeah. And... I but I did not like the first book came out in 2001 right like but the sixth and final book apparently which is called Endgame was just published in 2021 I had not a clue so this wow yeah this is like a good reminder to me that like I don't know everything about every book in the world. Yeah. And it's a good uh, nudge for me to pick up this series because I have been meaning to. I mean, they've staged plays of of Not Saint yes. Crosses. Like, I feel like there was like maybe it like got optioned. Like there's this book has been around for a hot minute and talked about in all kinds of ways. But and yet there's still more to learn. So, yeah, I agree. It's super <laughs> good news. And it's a really good reminder for me that I should dive into this series sooner than later. Yes, same. I feel all of those things as well. Uh, So congratulations to Mallory Blackman on winning the prize. Well, I want to keep the good vibes going. So I am going to direct us to this really great and interesting write-up about uh, vampire tropes um, organized around the new Netflix show First Kill. Um, this is from Them, which is a website that I really love reading, and it's by Sarah Clements. And Clements is looking at the history of queerness in vampire stories um, with a focus on this Netflix series First Kill, which is an adaptation based on a story by V.E. Schwab. And I think I remember us talking about when First Kill got optioned, because neither of us have read it, right? Oh, right. No, I haven't read it. Yeah. So, like, I remember us being like, oh, V.E. Schwab apparently wrote, like, a lesbian vampire short story, and now it's going to be a show. Like, that sounds cool. And now, like, a thousand years later, it's out on Netflix. (laughs) And um, the show sounds great. Like, I really appreciate the review that Clements put in here. There are mild spoilers, so just, like, know that um, going in. But I don't care about that. So, But what I, like, the framing of this piece I thought was so good because, you know, Clements goes back to, like, Bram Stoker and Carmilla by, you know, Sheridan Lefanu and um, talks about the various ways that queerness and vampire stories have been entangled and how First Kill really does bring some fresh energy and like deconstructs a lot of the, you know, barrier gaze, et cetera, type tropes that have been part of this intersecting subgenre for a long time. And it just made me really excited about that we have shows like this now, that this is the direction that, you know, we're moving in, especially, you know, given the bad news in the world Mm -hmm. right now, you know, um, queerness and transgender folks are, like, facing huge attacks across the country and across the world. Like, it's a very rough time for a lot of the queer community, especially the queer community of color. And so it's really lovely to see 
a story that like does good things for these characters and sounds just like something I need to put in my eyeballs as soon as I get a chance. Yeah, it was really interesting to read about the history of film and how, you know, film tried to quash any first tried to quash any mention of queerness. And so films were coded and then basically use these stories as um, messages mm. of, you know, think again if you're thinking of being attracted to somebody of the same sex and then just like how vampire films and monster films started to be more like heterosexual erotica stuff. Um, so it was just like interesting to hear the perspective and the history of film and how queerness has been treated. And I also saw uh, Zoraida Cordova and V.E. Schwab at the, I think it was like the uh, film opening for this. Oh. And that was when I was like, oh, this is, I didn't see them personally. I saw it on my Instagram okay. feed. <laughs> I was like, it's not that impressive. I was scrolling Instagram. <laughs> I wish. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, so I was like, oh, what is this? Because I had completely forgotten that we talked mm -hmm. about it. Um, but I can't wait to watch it. I am really excited. Uh, even having read the spoilers, I don't care either. And I cannot wait to see how they take this story and to actually read the story itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. It's exciting. Well, I'm going to bring us our one downer story. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, but this happened. So we all know comics have had a fraught history with how uh, the form treats people of color, marginalized people in general. And recently we got this story from Indie 100, and this is written by Greg Evans on Marvel's uh, backlash, the backlash they're receiving for this new Miles Morales Thor comic, which is like, just reading about <sighs> it, it, it just goes way into stereotypes about, you know, people in black neighborhoods and the way they treated this character which is beloved by a lot of people and you know there are so many opportunities for some really great original content to come out of a character of color uh, like Miles Morales and yet they just went into like basically they the way they depicted this black neighborhood was just all of the were stereotypes about black neighborhoods just like you know graffiti and referring to it as the hood and the way they wrote the dialogue was like super cringy i think there's one line um that miles morales as thor has where it's like by odin's fate yeah and i was like what like why would you do that and so the piece goes into the details of of some of the worst aspects of this comic and, of course, also includes some tweet reactions to this what-if version of um, the Marvel edition of Thor. So 
If you want to see, like, how bad it is, it is super cringy. I am just giving you fair warning about that. But it's bad. It's, it's bad. And I really hope they learn something from it. It's so bad. I mean, I loved Into the Spider-Verse. I've read Jason Reynolds' yeah. Miles Morales YA novel. Like, Miles Morales is an excellent Spider-Man and yeah, this is a bad look for Marvel. I mean, I think it's, there's like a couple things to like say here, which is that as the story points out, this is one of the only mile, recent Miles Morales uh, comics that has not been penned by a black writer. So yeah. there's like, you know, we have been getting some good, solid Miles Morales content. Um, this ain't it. Like, super not it. And it just was like, you know what it reminded me of, Sharif, is like the black exploitation films. Oh, of like, totally. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, let's put every stereotype we can think of about black people, but it's like, but it's fun, right? Like, it's fun. You're like, no, it's not fun. It's not cute. Yeah. It's not yeah. cute. It's not fun. Like, this is not fun. Like, turning Asgard into, quote unquote, the hood is such a bad choice. And you're just like, as you know, the Twitter commentary it noted, like, who approved this? Like, what? Yeah. What were they thinking? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sounds People great. People will be able to relate to this. Yeah, like... it's gonna be awesome. Like, no, it's not awesome. So you know, it's real. It's real sad um, that I like. I feel especially for you know the fans who are like deserve so much more than this, and this is what they're getting. So, yeah, big misstep um, again. But as you said, like, you know, comics has a long history of like we get some good stuff and we get some bad stuff and it's extremely yeah. a mixed bag. So uh, I I am happy that we have other Miles Morales things that are not this to yes. like cleanse our brains, shall we say. Yes, this will not tarnish our love for Miles Morales no, just no. for this horrible, horrible yeah. issue. I have not been following the what if stuff, to be perfectly honest, and I feel fine about that. <laughs> I watched the series, like uh, the Disney Plus Marvel mm -hmm. series, and that's about like I didn't, I haven't read anything, yeah. and it was like, it was fine. Yeah. It was like there were some good ones, some whatever ones, but. This is not. Okay, is, I'm side glad note, though. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> good representation news from Marvel. I just watched the first episode of Ms. Marvel this Yay, past week. I, it was so good. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I loved it as I love her. Yes. I can't remember the actress's it's name. Iman. Oh, what's her name? I'm going to look it up. We just mentioned it. She is just like such a great actress like she has so much she puts so much much personality yes. into that character i was just blown away it iman was so good. is her name yes she is incredible she's so good i love her everybody is so good oh in yeah that. everybody's so good so and the like cinematography is really interesting yes. and the music is fantastic like i i just i've Again, I've only seen the first episode, but I am hooked. So you know that's that's a nice note <laughs> in representation nice in comics. Um, and and like, I, I take back. No, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. 
<laughs> I was just going to say, I take back my comment that I, I'm fine with it being six episodes because I know I'm going to be like, I want more. Where yeah. is more? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It also appears to be like a super representative writer's room, which again, like that's what yeah. we need. That's what we need. That's what we should have. Exactly. Bringing so. us right back to it. Good That's job. right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, in other adaptation news, I don't know. I, this is just like a, okay, this is happening uh, note. We have some updates about Dune Part 2. And yes. uh, Leah Saydu is now joining the cast. Uh, she's going to play a character called Lady Margot, who I 100% do not remember. Okay. Um, I was like, I, I hope Jen like, knows Margo. who this is because I don't. I mean, don't. <laughs> I think I have a guess, but I don't actually 100% remember either. So, you know, it's fine. We can Google it if we yeah. wanted to. I did not bother because it doesn't really matter. Um, she's going to play a Benet Gesserit which is the but I didn't realize like Christopher Walken is gonna be in Dune part two like who what I didn't know it's that either gonna be he's gonna play the emperor which is interesting yeah super interesting choice like I I can't even get my head around that to be perfectly honest yeah. Um. And like we've got an announcement. Austin Butler is going to be playing Fade Rotha, which I was curious about when Fade was going to come into it because that's a pretty big character from part the original book, and I we didn't see that character at all in Dune Part One. So, you know, it looks like I I suspect that much like Dune Part One, my biggest problem with it was that we didn't get any depth to any of the characters there are so many yeah of them. this the focus is on these big sweeping you know shots like we don't get a lot of character nuance and the number of casting announcements makes me believe that that's exactly what's going to happen with dune part two which is fine <sighs> it was beautiful to look at and like you could follow the story for the most part i think so that's cool but like you know I don't know. I'm having I'm a, I'm very meh on this as you can probably tell. Yeah. I was just going to say like I'm looking forward to seeing more of Zendaya than those sequences where she's Ugh. just basically looking over her oh shoulder and that's that for oh her. No. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think looking at this character list like how how right. would you have more more depth um but I'm also like, I remember when we were talking about this initially and I was like, October 20th, 2023 is like a million years away. And now it just feels like it's going to be coming up sooner rather than yeah. later. But it is still like, I, I can't believe we still have to wait like basically <laughs> a whole another, another year. year. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Um, it's real. It's really real. But yeah, I I am also like whatever. Maybe once we're a lot closer to the release date, I'll feel a little bit more excitement. But. I I watched it at a drive-in, which I will not do again. Oh, because oh okay, yeah, because I love to go to the drive-in. Like I think that's amazing. But the definition on the screen was not good enough for the like worm shots which were the money oh. shots and I was like well I can't even it's just like a gray blob like I can't tell what I'm supposed to be looking at and I re I will say I rewatched those scenes on my partner's sister's like 5D super fancy TV Ooh. and it was better but it was still like 
this is this is a little hard to see. Like this, why would you shoot a dusk shot of your giant CGI creature? Like that's just that's just poor planning, in my opinion. So, yeah, like, we had to cap our budget. And, I, I uh, don't know. They the... spent a bajillion dollars on it. Why would you they not make did. it more like visually impactful? Anyway, side brand. I'm getting off track here, but like. <laughs> I will not see the second one because the visuals are really, for me, the only payoff of going to see the first one. Like, the visuals were great. The end, you know, is how I felt about it. Like, it had so many other problems as far as I was concerned. Um, So, but the visuals were cool. So, like, if I'm going to see this, but I also don't know that I want to pay that much money to a movie theater. So, I might, like, just, like, sweet talk somebody with a really good TV into letting me watch it at their house. That's my plan. I watched it on my standard TV, um, and I was fine with it, yeah. to be honest. Okay. Like, I was like, this is fine. Right. <laughs> I I'm still getting, like, the moments of epicness, and yeah. we set up our sound system in such a way that oh, we felt okay. like it was theatrical. And yeah. I was like, this is okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for our news, and we're going to hear from another sponsor and then talk about our mixed bag picks. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid-back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be. Right? Right, girl. Like, we all know. So, just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series, Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. All All right. right. Yes. So I 
do have one that's actually from Q2, you know, uh, <laughs> March, like it's April, May, June. Yeah, that's the, I was like, what is Q2? Q2 April, May, June. Um, I am, <laughs> I, had to do that I mean, y'all know that we love us some Nevo and yes. Siren Queen, holy bejesus, is amazing. It just came out uh, this year. I am obsessed with it. Did you read it yet? I haven't. And oh. I saw it and I was like, why haven't I read that yet? <laughs> why, Sharifa? Why? You but need I'm to glad you're talking it. about oh it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it is like the queered, like golden age Hollywood dark fae story I did not know that I was waiting for. I mean, this is some epic writing. It is incredible. It follows a young Chinese-American girl who lives in this very specific neighborhood in, in like, Los Angeles and Hollywood. It's called Hungarian Hill. And it's, like, a traditionally, you know, immigrant community. And she... It's it is golden age like pre Hayes Code Hollywood you know early Hollywood, um, mm. and she sees you know filming happening on the street and she gets like pulled in off the street to be like an extra for this one scene and that's like it she's like this is what I want to do I want to be in the movies but obviously she faces a lot of hurdles including that in this reimagining Hollywood is run by the Fay who are not friendly, happy creatures. Like, this is, like, blood magic. This is, like, giving away parts of your soul in exchange for fame. Like, this is the dark fae in, in, like, iteration of that. And so she, like, but she doesn't care. She's going to do what she's going to do. And so she makes her bargains and she finds a way to not play the stereotypical roles that are available to Chinese American women at this time, which means that she plays monsters. And the whole book is very much about what it means when other people label you a monster in various ways. So including that um, Luli is, you know, loves women. And that's also not allowed at this point. So, you know, you get this underground queer scene and what it means to try to hide that, especially in Hollywood where you are a public figure and your every move is scrutinized and the, the studios own you and your name and, like, you know, what does that mean for you? How do you try to have relationships in that context? And it is oh, so engrossing. It's so compelling. It goes so many amazing places. I loved every character that I, like, you know, got to know. It was just really incredibly done. And by the end, I was just like, there's this amazing moment at the end that I was like, cheer, like throwing my hands around, like cheering. I was like, yeah. it was so good. It's so good. It's so 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 good. I've said oh that like a thousand goodness. times, but it's really fantastic. Like one, it's going to be one of my favorite books of the year, hands down. And 
I was thinking about this book called War for the Oaks by Emma Bull that I was obsessed with as a teenager, which also features like a musician, like creative types who are drawn into the aura of the Fae is a trope that I love. And like if that is a thing that you love, like you must you must pick up this book. You must, 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 must. Um, I did say it was dark. Some content warnings include self-harm, domestic violence, and mention of sexual assault. So, like, you know, gird yourself a little bit. But, like, oh, it is it is amazing. And I, like, want to see, I now want to see Luli Wei's movies. Like, I wish these movies existed. Like, the way that Vo describes Luli's roles I'm like I need to I need somebody needs to make this like please somebody make this into <laughs> uh like show so that I can see it because it is so visual and so well done so again that's Siren Queen by Nevo I'm trying not to jump around excitedly in my <laughs> podcasting tent because that's not good for recording <laughs> I am. I cannot wait. I I was already sold. I know what an amazing writer Nevo is, yes. and I'm just like this makes me want to run out of here and go pick it up immediately. Yeah, so excited. Well, I wish that I could continue the low key theme of queer history and film, but my fantasy pick has nothing to do with that. <laughs> it is, but it is a great book. And this is the title I have. My sci fi title is the one that is from this quarter. This is not, this is my current read that I am loving so much and completely engrossed in. So I'm talking about Within These Wicked Walls by Lauren Blackwood, which is a book I have not talked about on this show before, so it's fresh in a way. Um, And it was actually published late in 2021, and it's just one of those titles I kind of missed toward the end of the year, even though it came out in the perfect time, like October, and Mm. this super creepy... A gothic supernatural horror book would have been exactly what I needed in October, but I'm reading it in summer and it's giving me the chills anyway, and it is very welcome. And I I think I just have this like newfound love of gothic supernatural horror specifically with a non-Western setting. Mm. It is super specific, and I'm just glad that there are actually a few titles, like a handful of titles that fit that theme um, out recently. And this is one of them. So if you love that too, uh, the story is actually set in an Ethiopian-inspired locale. And this is where the main character, whose name is Andromeda, great name, by the way, uh, Andromeda lives as a detera, and she doesn't have the credentials to do most work in her field. She's kind of like getting by on some lies, basically. But she's hired by this household that's really desperate for anybody to come in and basically sweep this besieged, creaky castle of the evil eye. And that's what Andromeda does as a detera. Her job is to cleanse places of the evil eye, which includes lots of horrifying things. Um, And this particular castle has been host to a bunch of disappearances and some nightly horrors. So everybody, like, 
basically locks their doors every night and hopes for the best, crosses their fingers, uh, that nothing terrible is going to happen, that they're not going to disappear in the night. Uh, so in this house, Andromeda meets the few, very, very few people who have remained and who have not disappeared. So that's a couple of the servants, uh, the lawyer, and the rich, troubled heir, Magnus Rochester. And the name might have tipped you <laughs> off that this book, yes, <laughs> it does have a Jane Eyre flavor. Um, and I think it was marketed as like a Jane Eyre retelling. I don't know if I would describe it as a retelling specifically. That's why I say it has the a Jane Eyre flavor. Uh, so I wouldn't go in expecting an outright retelling. I would characterize it as more loosely inspired. But it has like, if you love those vibes, the Jane Eyre vibes with the actually supernatural thrown in there, then this is definitely a good book for you. Um, so Andromeda goes to this house and the servants are actually really helpful and Magnus's lawyer is really helpful, but Magnus himself is this big old question mark. His behavior is really unsettling at first and really confusing to Andromeda. And she realizes that he is as besieged by the evil eye as the house itself. So from the first meeting, it's obvious, like, something's not right here. Um, and as the two get to know each other better, their relationship ultimately changes. There's some romance kindling. And Andromeda does not know what to do about it because she is just this character that's so deeply untrusting and unwilling to believe anybody could love her. It, like, broke my heart every time. She she kind of walls herself off from people. She's been taught not to stick her neck out for others in case, you know, hers gets broken. She's lived a really hard life. And she just has this longing that really disturbs her because she's never felt love. She doesn't know what it is, but she knows that it's something she longs for. And she's also just an intrinsically good person, even though she feels like she's not inclined to like get too involved or let her heart um, be, you know, intertwined with the lives of others. And you see this push and pull in her, which is highlighted by this first person narration. You are in her mind this whole time. And so you're hearing about her conflicting feelings around Magnus. And I'm also like 100% dangerously unbalanced power dynamic between employer <laughs> and employee, not HR approved. But I'm also like, yes, you are worthy of love. It's fine to, to feel things for people. Um, and on top of that, the book is just full of like really deliciously creepy moments with things like hands reaching up from the floorboards at night and a closet full of talking spiders and bloody rooms. And this is, I guess, YA fantasy, which was kind of surprising to me. I did not guess that upon reading it. Um, and it has this sort of turbulent romance and Andromeda is just this really interesting and intense character. So yeah, I'm just enjoying being inside her head and reading about this super creepy situation and trying to figure out what is actually happening here. So that's a, a somewhat oldie but a goodie. And again, that was Within These Wicked Walls by Lauren Blackwood. Definitely gonna bump that up on my list. I love, yeah, I love a lot of those things. I don't love a closet full of spiders, but I will 
That was horrifying. I will do. I will skim that part. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I will do. Probably. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, so my next pick is the one I'm not done with yet. As I said, I am a little bit behind. Um. In my reading, but I, I, I knew I was going to like this book because I've read this author before, and so I feel really comfortable, even though I'm only about halfway through, recommending The City Inside by Samit Basu. And he wrote a series uh, called The Turbulence. I think it's The Turbulence series. Turbulence is definitely the first book. That's like a bunch of people are on a plane and get powers and nobody knows why like everybody who was on the plane got a power and like then what happens and it's amazing it's so good um and i was really excited to see a new book coming from him and this one i think that one was more paranormal that series this is very like near future tech dystopia is how i want to call it and it's very interesting to me too because you know, I've been noticing this more and more. Like, it turned up in Machinehood by S.B. Divya. There was a short story that I talked about on the show that I couldn't find in our show notes, but it was all about, um, you know, a digital, like, uh, somebody loses their partner and the digital image of their partner persists and is owned by a corporation. Like, this, like, these themes mm. of surveillance and then, like, um, generated, like, people, like, pe- fake people who one maybe once were real, maybe were never real. I mean, we talked about those CGI influencers, right, Sharifa, on, oh, yeah. on social media. So it's like that stuff. That's, yeah, exactly. That's what this is about. <laughs> it takes place um, in and around Delhi, and uh, they, there are two perspective characters. There's Joey, who works as a quote-unquote reality controller, which, like, yeah, it's real. Like, her job is to um, manage the live stream presence of Indy, who is her ex-boyfriend and, like, a, you know, streaming star, basically. They're called flowers in this world. Um, but he's, like, an online celebrity, and, like, she's in charge of making the reality of his life that people see, which is, of course, not actual reality, but it doesn't matter, right? Like, it doesn't matter. And every, everyone is surveilled 24-7 all the time. And this is in India that I think the the thing that's really, like, kind of terrifying about this near-future story is that Basu is taking all of the issues that both India and other countries are facing, you know, the rise of fascism and, you know, mm-hmm. increase in, like, ethnic, you know, inter-community violence and, um, you know, oligarchy and, like, the haves versus the have-nots, that divide getting ever wider and, like, really leaning into, like, yeah, what would that look like in, like, 20, 30 years? And it is so scary. It's so scary. Um, oh. And so, like, Joey, but Joey is, like, she she was raised going to protests by her parents And she has had to, like, survive in the world. So she has this job. It's not great. She plays the game that she needs to do, you know, play to, like, be safe and to provide for her family. Because what else is she going to do is how she feels about it. And then Rudra is our other perspective character. He comes from a very wealthy and powerful family, but has sort of rejected it, but not in, like, a flashy, heroic way. Like, he, like, low-key 
like lives in like a really cheap apartment in a neighborhood that he's like not technically you know supposed to live in and like plays video games all day like that's his he's like just trying to disconnect and like like not be part of anything in particular um but when his father dies he like goes back home for the funeral his family puts him in an incredibly like not great position for him and he ends up taking a job with Joey um that she offers him as like a, a like an escape route from his parents and then the two of them you know things start to get progressively more intense and like it is i am in the grips of like the first big it like up uh, uh, up you know oh, what's the word I want anteing up of the action like I am in the middle of that oh, moment yeah. right now and it is so tense and I'm just like so nervous for these characters and what is going to happen next and like where is this going to go like I am in it and I think Basu has created a really scary because it feels potentially very real vision of the near future in which yeah like reality TV and live streaming have like created this whole have gone like beyond and are going to keep going beyond. And like, what do we own of our identities? And like, what, what does it mean to exist publicly? And what powers do, you know, corporations, do politicians, do producers have over the way we think, the way we feel, like what actions we take in our daily lives? Like it is worth thinking about and also terrifying. Like my tinfoil hat is just going to like get more elaborate every page I read of this book. Um, So, yeah, if you like me are enjoy being freaked out by that future possibility (laughs) like you definitely want to read this book also Basu is also really good at like uh action sequences in the same way that I want like the Siren Queen to be you know a movie so I can see it like this could absolutely be a mini series or a show like this is so visual he's so good at writing you know like the movements and like setting the scene so it's really immersive um and it does take place like if you are looking for more you know stories that aren't just like dystopian america like this is a hundred percent uh your jam it's it's so good i can't wait to to find out what happens next so and also i'm really terrified (laughs) so that's (laughs) the city inside by samit basu Oh, wait, I, I forgot like to give content warnings. I just realized. Oh, right, uh, right. The content warnings I have come across so far are rape and violent racism. It's, I'm still reading it. But, yeah, it's getting violent. So, FYI. Ooh. I was going to say I don't like it, Jen. I know. <laughs> I know. It's funny to me, like, what our versions of horror are that, like, we can handle. Do you know what I mean? Like, this yeah. Is, like, this is the kind of scary that I can handle and I, like, I find cathartic in a way. Like, whereas, like. The body horror stuff or whatever. Like the stuff that you're a jam, I cannot do it. Yeah. (laughs) I can't do it. I mean, to each their own, I will probably feel inclined to try to pick it up. I do love a thrill ride and I do love intensity. So Mm -hmm. maybe that'll push me to pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in lighter titles, <laughs> I don't actually, I don't read a lot of science fiction that I would say, that I would like recommend is a good as a good beach read. Mm. But I think that this one 
My science fiction pick this time tomorrow, it's by Emma Straub. I think I could say that this is a a good science fiction beach read, actually. Mm. Um, And I just learned yesterday, I think the news was just announced yesterday, that it's being adapted by Lionsgate. So um, I feel ahead of the curve for once on something getting adapted. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, uh, before I get started talking about this, I am going to be talking about an ailing parent and the loss of a parent. So feel free to skip ahead if you need to. Um, But yeah. So I can see actually why this book is being adapted. In some ways, it reminded me of stuff like, and this is going to sound really weird, but it reminded me of things like Freaky Friday or The Parent Trap, but make it grown. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) it has that vibe. And you know, those comparisons, I make those comparisons because Uh, In this case, it's the situation where some anomalous thing happens, some phenomenon happens, and it becomes one part learning experience and one part caper that involves a parent and a child. So in this case, it's Alice and her dad, Leonard. And Alice is about to turn 40, which I fully relate to. (laughs) Uh, And she's living in, she's still living actually in New York City. It's where she grew up. Um, She loves New York City and everything about it. But not so great about her life is that she's in this mediocre relationship um, that she doesn't see much of a future for. And she's working at the school she actually attended as a teenager, Belvedere, because, you know, that's where she ended up after college. And that's where she was like one of few people uh, who went to Belvedere and actually worked there who stuck around. So she's sort of just stuck in this job. And then also the worst thing is that her dad is dying. And Alice and Leonard are just this like great pairing, this great uh father-daughter duo they've been tight all their lives um or all her life actually uh and she has this distant strained relationship with her mom so it really has just been her and leonard since she was a little kid and they they do have that rare relationship where they just get each other um and they have always talk to each other and confided in each other and are just like they just really care about each other so of course it's really hurting Alice to see her dad in in hospice and to know that he only has a little time left so her 40th birthday is around the corner uh and she's spending some of it with her BFF Sam And she's kind of still having feelings of sorrow. You know, she's just visited her dad. And then something really unexpected and alarming happens. And Alice wakes up from this kind of like birthday bender, not 40 years old, but 16 years old. So she's back in this house she grew up in with her dad. And it's the day of her 16th birthday. And she remembers what happened that day on her 16th birthday. It was an eventful one, I'll just say. But it's also, uh, of course, not so easy to slip into being 16-year-old Alice again. And luckily, she has her friend. Her BFF, Sam, is there. They went to high school together. They've known each other forever. 
And so that's her one sort of like comfort in this truly weird situation she's struggling to understand. Um, And then seeing the younger version of her dad also is very bittersweet and weird. And Alice learns she can go back and forth in time, basically, but only between her 16th and 40th birthday. And so she decides that this phenomenon is her ticket to figuring out how to save Leonard. And so this is, I will say, a very, very much a suspend disbelief story. It's not so much about the mechanics of time travel, even though hilariously a bunch of science fiction authors at a convention at one moment in the book debate time travel in fiction, <laughs> which is very is very meta. <laughs> and Leonard is a a novelist, so um, and he wrote a story about time travel, so it's even more meta. Uh, And I would say like the time travel element is more of a, you know, mechanism for this story about the love between a father and a daughter and grieving and facing a parent's death. Um, So it's this device that is as much about, you know, how Alice is processing her grief as well as kind of a way to inject some fun into this story because it is, you know, also a very fun and funny story. And it's also super nostalgic. I um, I feel like this is kind of a an indulgent read for me because I was a teenager in the 90s, just like Alice was. And it's still my favorite era as far as pop culture is concerned. And there are just so many references to pop culture and just callbacks to being a teen in the 90s in this book when Alex, Alice is 16 again. And even the way Alice and Sam talk to each other in the book, feel it felt very familiar. Um, I did not live in New York City as the daughter of a novelist <laughs> who was very famously uh, – who had his books adapted and became a famous person and they had a lot of wealth and things like that. But she sort of represented this sort of cool kid in a posh school having parties and being risky. So not super relatable on that (laughs) level, but the 90s stuff was like, that spoke to my heart. And I just enjoyed reading about her life and getting to the end of the book, which, you know, left a lump in my throat a little bit. Um, And I could definitely see it being kind of a tearjerker for anybody who knows that feeling, who knows what it's like to lose a parent. But again, it was also super funny and very sweet and heartfelt. So yeah, that was This Time Tomorrow by Emma Straub. It's like the flip of 13 going on 30. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that one. That is a much better cop. Yeah, funny. I do enjoy Emma Straub's books, so I that is on my list. Um, so it's good to hear that it's it's a fun one. Yeah. That's, and Slash also like a, a heartfelt one. She's good at that, though. She's good at that. Yeah, this is my first Straub, so it's my introduction. It's the only sci-fi one she's written. Her other ones are not, oh. are more contemporary fiction. Well, also a Golden Age historical Hollywood one. Side note. We have like a lot of weird intersecting themes today. <laughs> I know. How did that happen? It was not know. planned. Obviously, this episode was very like, who knows what's going to happen next. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's actually it for our show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our recommendations. And SFF Yeah is sound edited by Caitlin Brame. Many thanks to her for making us sound great each and every episode. You can find more recommendations at bookriot.com. And you can find our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can email us your ideas for shows or animal photos or whatever you want at sffyeah at bookriot.com. Um, and if you have a moment, please review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It really helps people find us. Uh, and you can find us online. Where can they find you, Jen? I am very occasionally right now on Twitter and <laughs> Tumblr as Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L, or on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. It's nice to take a break sometimes. I, you know, the summers I just am bad at posting It's what it seems like it is. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I am also bad at posting, <laughs> uh, but you can find my occasional posts and lots of stories on Instagram. I'm at S Zainab Williams. That's S-Z-A-I-N-A-B Williams. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.